Scientists across the globe have joined the urgent fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. Coming up, here from two researchers in the race to eradicate the virus and save lives. We live with technology, science, engineering, and the results of innovative research every day. Now, let's understand it better. You're listening to the Technology Today podcast presented by Southwest Research Institute. Hello and welcome to Technology Today. I'm Lisa Benya. Now, usually we record in our studio, but today we are working from home, practicing social distancing and recording our interviews by phone. So this episode may sound a little different. Of course, the coronavirus pandemic is changing how we do things and changing lives around the world. The illness caused by this virus is called Coronavirus Disease 2019 or COVID-19. The numbers of COVID-19 cases and deaths are rising every day. Our guests today have joined the race to stop the widespread coronavirus in its tracks. Dr. Ricardo Carrion is a scientist, professor, and director of contract research at Texas Biomedical Research Institute, which is an independent San Antonio-based research and development organization. Texas Biomed's focus is infectious diseases. Dr. Jonathan Bowman is a principal scientist at Southwest Research Institute. They are combining their expertise to search for a coronavirus drug therapy. Thank you both for joining us today. Let's start with Dr. Carrion. Uh, Ricardo, your team has answered the international call to tackle this virus. What is happening right now at Texas Biomed to mobilize against the coronavirus? Uh, thank you. We've been uh, ha- had a Texas Biomed-wide effort to tackle coronavirus research. So as you mentioned, our, our business is trying to eradicate infectious disease. So this is part of our mission. And with uh, being led by our president, we are focusing on developing animal models models, uh, because once we identify candidate drugs, so drugs similar to what we're working with, Siri with, we need to test them in a relevant animal system. So that will be the bottleneck in the future is testing these drugs and these animal systems. So we're looking at three different species of non-human primates, marmosets, baboons, and rhesus macaques, to determine if coronavirus COVID, causes COVID-19 disease, that SARS-CoV-2, when exposed to these animals, can, these animals can develop a disease similar to humans. And the idea would be that if these animals model human disease, then we can use them to uh, test these therapeutics. Aside from that, uh, we have to develop the tools, which we have been doing and we have done, to uh, assay samples from these animals, but also look at compounds to see if the compounds that we're looking at can prevent replication of the virus. And if they can, they automatically become a candidate for for using these model systems. Okay, so walk us through the process a little bit. In order to study the the disease and the virus, well, you need to have a sample there in the lab. How and when did you obtain access to the virus? The sample we received was through uh, a resource that the government has called DEI resources. The objective is to make available to scientists samples that can be used to look at therapeutics, compounds, other things. Uh, So we received a shipment of a small aliquot of the virus back at the beginning of March. Uh, Since then, that material needs to be grown up, amplified, so that we can use it for other experiments. Uh, We've done that part of it where we expanded the the virus in a tissue culture system 
we've analyzed the genome to make sure that it didn't undergo any changes while we grew it up so it's authentic to the original isolate. And the original isolate was one of the first cases in, in Washington state. Uh, so it was from a person that was ill with the disease. At this point now, we developed assays to be able to test therapeutics. But we need to make sure we have confidence in the assays. Otherwise, when we perform tests, we don't know if it's a real uh, effect of stopping replication of the virus or if it's an artifact of our testing system. So we've been through this entire process trying to get to the point now where we can test compounds. Okay, and so for our non-research-minded audience members, can you define what assays are? So assays are um, in vitro experiments in which we take virus and we will mix it with, in this case, a candidate drug, and then we'll try to determine if that drug kills the virus or if it prevents it from replicating. Uh, viruses, they depend on magnesium cells to grow. So if you have a virus on a surface, it's not going to magnify itself, it's not going to amplify in that space because it needs another cell to grow. Viruses require cell machinery. They take invader cells, take it over, produce more of itself. So that's how we determine if the virus replicates. We use that virus to infect a cell in a tissue culture plate and determine after a certain amount of time if the virus has uh, expanded, if it's grown, or if it has stopped replicating or stopped growing. So a drug that's efficacious, a drug that works, would prevent that virus from, from actually making more virus. And we can determine uh, what amount of that drug causes the virus to stop replicating. Uh, so we do kind of dose curve analysis where we look at if we have a uh, hundred times the amount of, of this drug, and then we start reducing it, do we see an effect on virus replication? So what is a realistic timeline to uh, develop this drug therapy or a vaccine? Outside of a uh, pandemic like we're experiencing right now, we can take you know, five to 10 years for something to be developed. Uh, we've had a head start. Uh, there's a level of collaboration among the scientific community has not been seen before. Uh, we had SARS-1 outbreak occurring back in early 2003. Uh, there's a MERS outbreak back in 2012. These are very similar outbreaks. Uh, but the current 2020-2019-2020 outbreak, uh, we have scientists from all over the world uh, exchanging data in real time. Now, technology has a lot to do with this. We have working group meetings. We zoom information between each laboratory. And every time a scientist uncovers a piece of the positive of this coronavirus, issue, uh, everyone's known about it. So it helps in two ways. One, it helps um, in terms of the speed at which we have discoveries. If we do an experiment and we uncover something about the virus, uh, another lab doesn't have to discover that same that same issue. We're able to share information so it works quickly. Uh, so in this case, I think we're going to see a compressed timeline. Also, many of the companies have already learned from previous outbreaks and, and are able to adapt their technology to make vaccines using existing uh, vaccine platforms and drugs using existing drug platforms that we know work in other other types of viruses that can be applied to this one. In addition to that, uh, because of the, the Ebola outbreaks uh, and some of these other diseases, we've been able to use animals as surrogates for humans. Uh, in the case of very deadly diseases, it's unethical at times and impossible to do traditional human trials where you look at efficacy in humans. So being able to substitute animals that replicate the disease in a way that humans do will help compress the timeline as well. So we're not going to skip safety. So that's not going to be an issue. Everything has to go through 
appropriate safety testing, but with regards to efficacy testing, uh, the ability to use animals helps us to reach our goal much more quickly. So there are some estimates that within a year from now, we'll be able to have a drug compound or a vaccine out that will be approved for human use. So from five to 10 years in a normal situation, but because of the collaboration worldwide, you're looking at fast-tracking this and maybe getting a good drug therapy out in about a year. Right, and also it, it costs money to, to do this. Uh, there's a ton of money that are being invested uh, into these programs by the government, but also locally. Uh, we're fortunate in that uh, San Antonians have donated to Texas Biomed to do these critical monkey experiments. We're fortunate in that San Antonians understand the value of science and they understand the value of these types of experiments and they, they're really willing to give monies to do this. We're a private nonprofit institute, so we can't do this without support from a local community. In addition to that, the government, um, the BARDA, NIH, DOD are also providing monies to help supplement uh, these, this research. So again, uh, availability of money and also the sharing of resources with regard to, to information is helping to expedite these discoveries. I wanted to ask, I feel like this is an important question, but how is this virus different from other infectious diseases you've studied? What have you learned about it? Well, this virus is, is much different than what I normally study. I normally study filoviruses, Ebola virus, Marburg virus, and in those cases, you have up to a 90% fatality rate. Nine out of 10 people die. With uh, the current coronavirus outbreak, the SARS coronavirus 2, you're seeing if you have underlying conditions and you're very old, it's maybe 10% fatality rate, otherwise it's 1%. Uh, so the difference in mortality is something different. But the other thing is with Ebola virus, essentially a patient has to be very sick throwing up on you to, uh, in order for you to get infected. So it's, it's, it's infectious and deadly, but it's not as transmissible as coronavirus where uh, you're able to uh, infect other individuals even though you don't have these outward sign uh, of disease. Now, you do, you do get sick, you do get a fever, and when you have a fever, uh, you're, you can't transmit the disease. But unlike Ebola, you know, if the person's not act actively excreting some sort of bodily fluid on you, uh, then you, you're, you're going to be okay. Whereas with coronavirus, that's why we have the six-foot rule. If you're near somebody who's coughing, uh, there's a potential you can get infected. Uh, now, I haven't looked at the reproductive number lately. So that's the the number of people that get infected from an individual. So I think when it first came out, I thought it would be one, three people, so three. So three people for every one person infected. If there were no barriers, there were no six-foot rule, uh, no protection, three people get infected. Uh, whereas Ebola virus is essentially a one, so one-to-one. -one. So somebody's next to you and, and throws up on you, you're getting infected. So again, the difference in transmissibility to what I've worked with in the past is, is uh, a big difference. However, having said that, this is not the most transmissible virus, coronavirus in the world. So it, it could have been a, a lot worse had it been more transmissible. All right. So what you're finding is it is indeed highly contagious, perhaps not the most contagious virus in the world, but definitely up there. So I do want to go to Dr. Bowman now. Um, Jonathan, you are collaborating with Ricardo's team and contributing to this effort with a powerful software, Rhodium. So Jonathan, if you could tell us, what is Rhodium and how does it work? 
Sure. Uh, Rhodium is a software program that is designed to search for new candidate therapeutics, uh, given information about uh, the biological structure of uh, proteins that the virus expresses. So uh, in its uh, replication, uh, some of the, if you will, machinery uh, is a um, an enzyme called a protease. This is the main protease uh, is the target that I've selected first, and, and other people have too. But this main protease in the replication cycle uh, chops um, part of uh, a, a longer protein up into functional units, and uh, those are used by the virus. Uh, and uh, the target I have is that, that main protease, and the idea is to find with rhodium compounds that might uh, bind and compete uh, with its normal function. So what rhodium does is it's able to take not only the main protease, but any other proteins for infectious diseases and uh, look over the entire surface and it can perform a virtual screen. And so a virtual screen means that we can take a, a virtual library uh, represented in a computer as a um, digital object, I guess. Uh, and those, the library would be composed of maybe millions of compounds that are potential inhibitors. And so rhodium uh, checks all those combinations um, and determines what compounds might fit best to be inhibitors or blockers of those proteins. So um, what I have is, a, is computer processing power here in San Antonio. Uh, to do that virtual screening. I'm also now cooperating with uh, Walter Reed, uh, Army Institute of Research. We have a cooperative research and development agreement with them. And uh, I've been able to access some of their computer resources um, to do this virtual screening. So um, that's basically what Rhodium does. And it harnesses the processing power that's uh, available here on our campus and also uh, at other locations. So how long does it normally take for rhodium to screen these millions of compounds? What is the, the time frame you're looking at? Oh, not very long at all. Uh, we've had some really amazing, uh, fairly recent developments in the processing speed. You know, we do have our uh, computer scientists on campus that have been involved in the rhodium development for for several years. So right now, uh, on a kind of ordinary size computer that I have in my lab, uh, we're talking about 250,000 compounds a day. So um, so during the well, I'll, I'll tell a little bit more of the story. The um, structure, the three-dimensional structure of the main protease of this virus was um, was solved or it was determined and published to the scientific community back in uh, February, uh, the first week. And so by the end of February, I had 5 million compounds screened. 
and that was using resources here on campus and then off of campus. And so now, uh, after that, we were able to take those uh, ranked results, so rhodium will rank the way that these compounds will fit and could be inhibitors. And then we took those and we did, uh, Ricardo did talk about the importance of safety. Everyone understands that. We did take the, we'll call them hits, and we did additional um, screening of those hits with machine learning algorithms that we have to uh, remove compounds that would represent a safety risk. So there's about 20 different toxicology endpoints that are predicted by the software. It's separate from rhodium, but nevertheless, um, so things like um, uh, we, we can look at is uh, would this be um, um, metabolic liability? Would it be a um, carcinogen? Would it be any number of things that would be a safety risk? So, so from that list of um, Five million. We kind of selected uh, 60 after we screened uh, not only by uh, their, but we predicted to be their activity against the virus, but then these other safety um, screens that we applied after. So, um, so to answer your question, uh, we had those compounds selected at the end of um, February. The compounds that we've selected are now in, and they're, they're undergoing preliminary safety assays. So in the lab, over in our uh, in our area, um, on on our campus, and uh, and then uh, as those become as we complete that work, then uh, Ricardo will uh, will be able to start analyzing this compound. So. From start to finish, that was the beginning of February. Uh, We've screened 5 million compounds. We're down to 60 candidates by our computer screening. And now it is just the beginning of April. So that's two months to to get to where we are from the first information that was available. So when you say 60 candidates, you're you're saying that those are... 60 um, drug compounds that could effectively and safely treat COVID-19. However, they do need to go through further testing. Oh, of course. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we have 60 candidates. And so we we actually had to accelerate that, like uh, Ricardo was saying. Uh, the Walter Reed Institute for uh, Research uh, has, has starting to cooperate with us too on another front where uh, as as uh, Carter's group advances those compounds, they've also agreed to do in vitro, so uh, you know in laboratory safety screening, you know with other assays. So we've predicted these compounds to be uh, safe and effective. Ricardo will. Uh, Ricardo's lab will be able to test the uh, efficacy, and then um, and then uh, Walter Reed has agreed to already start assessing the safety in the laboratory, and these would be uh, cell-based assays. So we're not talking about animals yet, but uh, everyone's so interested in accelerating this program that they've agreed to do those tests without having any of uh, 
uh, Ricardo's data. Uh, so that's normally it would be that you would evaluate the efficacy and then the safety to reduce the number of tests. But now for the sake of time, Walter Reed is providing the bandwidth to simply test the compounds for their safety so that we'll get the results at the same time. So you're concurrent. Okay, so you're identifying these compounds and then relaying that information to scientists in labs like Texas Biomed, like Walter right. Reed, and then they are taking it to the next step. That's right. And are you able to communicate, you know, Ricardo mentioned a scientific collaboration uh, that at a level never seen before. Are you able to communicate with scientists around the world? Are you, are you keeping this on the national level, the local level, or are you really dispersing this information globally? Uh, we're dispersing this information right now uh, nationally, um, and and uh, it's through the as we work uh, through our uh, you know the the way forward with our project, you know the, the Walter Reed has reached out to provide most of the uh, support. Uh, but there are certainly more than those 60 compounds that was just an initial cut. There's probably several thousand more that would be interesting candidates out of that. And there's certainly opportunities to to share that uh, pretty far and, and wide. I did want to ask you the same question that I asked you, Gardo. How is this virus different from other infectious diseases that you've studied and maybe passed through rhodium? What I can speak from is from the standpoint of searching for drugs for this um, this uh, virus. The uh, actually one of the bigger challenges I think from the modeling side, uh, trying to the predictive side, it, it was harder to come up with a good structural model for making predictions for drugs that target Ebola. That was quite a challenge. Uh, the knowledge about this main protease is much more complete uh, than it was uh, at the time I started doing uh, uh, work on um, the uh, Ebola um, uh, inhibitors, where not as much was known about what kinds of structural proteins would be good molecular targets for that. So this is from where I sit, from the work that I do, this is actually, in a sense, it's a little bit easier to get started. It's so a little bit easier to make the hypothesis. Yeah. yeah, so the information is really flowing about this virus, and you were able to get a hold of that 3D model. That was not created at SWRI, correct? No, no. That's what Ricardo, I think, what this uh, alludes to what he was saying, the rate at which these compounds were were made available, uh, I'm not compounds, I'm sorry, the, the structural information was made available so rapidly to the scientific community. Um, that it was just amazing. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the rate uh, for that to be able to be, have been made public was just absolutely amazing. So we were able to um, to utilize that information very early, uh, like I said, in our in our efforts. So we will have a picture of that 3D um, coronavirus model up on our episode page for this episode, episode 18. Um, I want right. I want to go back to Dr. Garion. Um, 
is this the most urgent project of your career? Uh, most urgent? Yeah, we uh, were working up until recently, there was an outbreak of Ebola virus. And I think all of these viruses or diseases that affect human life is, is urgent. However, this seems to be, uh, how, how can I put it, uh, this, this virus, because of the restrictions on uh, movement, uh, the closing of, of restaurants, uh, makes it seem uh, more real in that uh, you know, when we treat, we work on Ebola virus, it's in Africa primarily, right? You know, we, have, we had a few cases during the last outbreak of people importing it. So uh, this one is around us uh, in, in, our, in the United States. So um, it just seems more real, but you know, essentially all the work we do, we, we consider it urgent and we're working hard to come up with advanced uh, science so that we can, we can um, combat it. But this is just in a situation where you know, we're not able to go across the street and eat at Chili's. Uh, we're having to bring uh, box lunches and much of the Institute is empty. Uh, only the people working on COVID-19 or uh, these other infectious diseases are, are here. So again, I think it makes it uh, more real to us. What is the tone or the feeling uh, in your labs right now with your team? I think everybody's excited, excited but we're tired. You know, we've been, uh, to, to get the, the virus amplified so quickly, we had to do the deep sequencing to, to analyze it. Uh, essentially, individuals are, are working um, Every day of the week, and now that we study, we started animal studies. Um, we're used to working around the clock, so in the evenings and at 1 a.m. to check on animals. So that's going now too. Uh, and in addition to uh, coronavirus, we have other obligations with regard to other science that we're doing as well. So I think we're excited to be be fortunate to be part of this, and we all have a role uh, with this. You know, those that aren't doing sciences, science science uh, support support us, uh, our life in other ways. Uh, individuals listening now, uh, by by staying home when they're sick and in, adhering to some of the city recommendations are helping. So I think we all have a role. But uh, people like uh, that work at Surrey and here at Texas Biomed, our hands are, are a little more involved because we're actually able to touch uh, the virus and, and work with it. Uh, but without the community support, uh, the social distancing, being able to isolate yourself when you're sick, you know, it'd be a, a lot worse. So these things are, are helping, and we all have a role to play in this combating this disease. What kind of safety precautions do you take since you are handling the virus? Yeah, we we use uh, biosafety level three precautions. So what this means is that there is a specialized lab that has airflow that's negative to the entire building. Individuals in the lab wear a respirator. Uh, which includes a face mask where their entire head is covered up, their bodies in a Tyvek suit, which is a semi-porous material. So when you look at these hazmat teams, those white suits they use, that's what we use, uh, double gloves, booties. So essentially, when they're working with the virus, none of their clothing or their bodies are exposed to it. Uh, so that's the type of precaution that we use. And actually, working with the virus is very safe uh, because we have these precautions. Is that people in hospitals... Uh, the first responders, uh, those are the ones that are more at risk. So 
you know, we have the easy part when you talk about dealing with disease. Those individuals that work with patients that are sick are the ones that have it tough. And when you step out of the lab, do you have a different decontamination process for going home? That that is correct. Uh, when we uh, all that material I mentioned to you gets discarded. So before we exit the lab, we we have a surface decon of that material, the suits, uh, the tappers, the purified air respirators that we use, and then uh, that gets bagged up in autoclave. And when we work with these animals, people also, when they leave the space, take a physical shower. So the idea is if there's anything that that is on the individual somehow gets washed off. Uh, what I didn't, didn't mention is that all this work is occurring under a biosafety cabinet. So this is a, a work area, a workspace in which there's flow of air that prevents any type of, of inadvertent aerosols that are being formed when you manipulate the agent from passing out of that space. So everything's worked with what we call primary containment. So even if there was a spill, if there was, if somebody were to drop a tube and there were a splash, it's contained within this safe zone. So the BSL three suits are actually our, our uh, backup or last line of defense. The precautions we use in the lab by using this biosafety cabinet. Also, when we centrifuge down samples, we use what we call airtight canisters. So a tube is placed within a canister that's screwed tightly so that when you spin it, if the tube breaks, it's still contained within a, in a, within a canister. So there's all these other precautions that we're taking in addition to the suit. So it's a very safe environment to work with this, uh, this agent. So it's more safe than you know, being, again, like I mentioned, in a hospital setting where you have patients that have this disease and that you're treating for them. All right, um, highly safe environment over at Texas Biomed. Um, Jonathan, I did want to ask you the same question. Is there a different tone or a feeling? Um, what is the tone, the feeling in your labs right now? Um, I, we are, I, right now, uh, it's, you know, essential personnel uh, working on this project are there. Um, in terms of from where I sit, I am actually trying to stay home to be out of their way. And uh, so we have as few uh, people that, you know, that are actually in that lab just so they, you know, they can keep uh, working as long as, as possible. Uh, everyone is focused on uh, processing the samples right now. I think there's a real sense of uh, urgency about getting this um, getting this work done. So um, it, it's a good thing that I'm not there. Um, is what I'm trying to say. So yeah. it's, it's that we're taking it that seriously. Uh, the the that only essential people are working in that laboratory, and they are, uh, you know, we're talking on a maybe two or three times a day on the status and things that we have to do to get the project, keep the project going. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, everyone is very motivated to, uh, to make that work happen. And our, obviously our external collaborators, um, uh, Ricardo and his lab are, it's really amazing. Um, and it's what, what, but, and that's what we're seeing is, uh, all of our collaborators, uh, people are working together and taking this very seriously and things are moving pretty quickly. And I think that's the other thing is 
you know, people are looking for ways to, um, um, you know, work together. Uh, people are reaching out uh, to ask, you know, hey, what are you doing? And I'm able to reach out and uh, ask people, hey, what are what are you guys doing? Uh, in general, to to various labs. Um, so, yeah, it's the the level of collaboration is. I just it's blowing me away. It's really amazing. That collaboration. Uh, so the sense, yeah, the sense is very urgent. Okay, so I do to close out. I do have a question for both of you. I'll start with Jonathan. Um, Jonathan, as a scientist on the inside of this fight, you have a unique perspective. Any words of advice, encouragement? For our listeners, we are just overwhelmed by the news we are hearing every day. Our lives have completely changed almost overnight. You know, is there a light at the end of this tunnel? I would only say I've never seen scientists working harder and faster to solve a problem in my career. That's that's a reassurance there and working together. And I think that that definitely gives us all hope. Um, and Ricardo, same question for you. Any words of advice or encouragement for our listeners in this unprecedented time? I, I think there is hope. So uh, as Jonathan mentioned, working together, um, scientists are, are coming up with ways to help uh, defeat the virus, preventing it or helping those that, get be- that are sick get better. And I think the other thing is that we all have a role to play. So it's very important to to stay home, you know, not not to go out when you're sick, to isolate yourself when you do become sick, even if it's not coronavirus. Um, it's only by by doing this do we do we buy time, and also help minimize the impact to those that uh, can be really severely affected by the disease. And many people are, are young and, and healthy, and if they get sick, it would be a terrible thing, but they're likely to survive, whereas uh, the elderly, those with underlying uh, diseases, comorbidities, I mean, diabetes is, is one of the risk factors for a bad outcome, and uh, we're in a city in which there are many diabetics. Um, Hispanics are affected greatly by this uh, complex disease. So again, I think we all have to to uh, do our part. And if you're not, you know, actually in the lab, you have other roles in supplying food for us at the, the grocery stores. Uh, but doing so safely, that we're not uh, transmitting the disease, because uh, we know that isolation, quarantine, these help to the, to slow it, and uh, that buys us time to hopefully minimize the total number of people that are affected by it. Yeah, such an important message. If you are not in the lab, if you are not a healthcare provider, if you are not one of those essential workers, our grocery workers, our truck drivers, then what you can do is stay home. What all of us can do is stay home. It's a really important message to just keep saying over and over, and hopefully everyone abides by it and we can get through this together and quickly. So I want to thank you both for being here today and truly thank you isn't enough for the vital work you are both doing to save lives around the world. Your collaboration is inspiring and really gives us all hope that there is an end in sight to this pandemic. So thank you again to our healthcare workers and other essential employees taking care of us during this time of great uncertainty. And thank you both again for joining us today. Thank you. We're happy to do it. Thank you. All right. Stay safe.
All right. Thank you both. And just a quick note about Texas Biomed and SWRI, we have the same founder, Tom Slick Jr. Both organizations were established in the 40s. While we are two separate organizations, our scientists often work together. So we wanted to focus on the coronavirus for this episode. Our segments Breakthroughs and Ask Us Anything are on hold for now. To our listeners, we appreciate you. And no matter where and how we are working, we will continue to be innovative and find ways to bring you new episodes each month. And we'll be back in our studio as soon as we can. Well, that wraps up this episode of Technology Today. Subscribe to the Technology Today podcast to hear in-depth conversations with the people changing our world and beyond through science, engineering, research, and technology. Connect with Southwest Research Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out the Technology Today magazine at technologytoday.swri.org. And now is a great time to become an SWRI problem solver. Visit our career page at swri.jobs. Ian McKinney and Brian Ortiz are the podcast audio engineers and editors. I am producer and host, Lisa Pena. Stay safe and thanks for listening.